I just saw the stars aligning to a certain degree between the global awareness of climate crisis, of microplastics, mm. of all these different things that I could see hemp could be a solution to solve. You are listening to the Cannabis Health magazine podcast, What's Your Why? My name is Hannah Deacon and I'm joined today by Professor Mike Barnes. We will be discovering the reason why people we're speaking to have such an interest in cannabis. What motivates them? Who were they before they found out about cannabis? How do they think things could be better for patients and the industry in the UK? We will take an in-depth look into what makes people tick with an informal conversation which won't focus on business development or commercial outlooks, but what drives them and why cannabis and the part they play in bringing it to the UK matters to them. Welcome Jamie Bartley, Thank you, Hannah. CEO of Unite. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Thank you for here. coming and talking to us. Thanks for having me. So, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> okay. Not way back into your early childhood days, but as far back as you'd like. What, uh, how did you start off life? Where did you grow up? And what were your early experiences, as it were? Okay, so I mean, I was I was born in Norfolk, and then I moved to Northamptonshire in 1989, and then following secondary school, I had a professional rugby contract and went to go and play rugby at university. That only lasted about four or five months before I destroyed my shoulder, um, which was <laughs> quite a, quite a short professional career, um, and unfortunately, as in the words of the coach at the time, you're good, but we, you're not that good. We can't look after you for 12 months and see if you might be able to play again or not in 12 months' oh, time. Hey. So yeah. that was the end of any high-level sort of rugby. Um, and then following that, I actually I left university because, to be honest, I was only there to, to play professional rugby. I was doing a, a sports studies qualification that was going to probably lead me into being a PE teacher, which both my parents had been, and I didn't really fancy going down the, the same route. <laughs> so uh, I left university, and then I took on a pub, actually, at 18 years old. So I took my first pub oh, on, really? on my own, which was... Right. An interesting experience. It was at 18. Yes, yeah. it was, yeah. yeah. It was at 24. Yeah. It's a lifestyle, I think, not a, not a job when you're doing yeah. that type of thing. Yes. You live and breathe it. It's sort of close the locking down at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're back up at 6 o'clock in yeah. the morning to sort the cellar out, clean the pub down and, and get going again. But it was, I found that really gave me a quite an open outlook on lots of different people because it was, it was a village pub. It was quite an eclectic mix of people that used to come in there. And I think at a young age, it actually benefited me a lot because I just got to talk to people all day, every day, but ultimately, and that's your job as a barman. If you can remember their, their name, their drink and uh, mm. and their yeah. face, you're doing, all, yeah. you're doing okay. And it, it, worked, it worked well and I, I did enjoyed it a lot. And then, where did I go from there? I uh, moved over to France then for a couple of years. I was running ski resorts over in the French Alps. So okay. I looked after uh, Teen and Val d'Isere and Saint-Foy. 45 staff and 450 guests when we were at capacity across the three resorts. You're right. Again, that was... Uh, a bit of a jump from running a pub. Yes, it was It was slightly <laughs> different. I, I must say, I did slightly blag the telephone interview a bit. I think I was 20 years younger than any of the other resort managers. But <laughs> it was it was good fun. Um, again, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's not probably a... You have to make that decision, I think, with that sort of role. You're never going to probably own your own house. You're never going to have much more than drinking money and food money, if you like, because it, it is geared up to... It is very much geared up for people to obviously live there, but also work and, and play at the same time, if you like. So that, again, yeah. great experience, really enjoyed it. But sort of after a couple of years of that, I thought, right, time to, time to get a real job. Right. Moved back to the UK and had no idea what that real job was going to be, if I'm honest. Uh, and it was, at the time, someone I'd worked with previously had sort of said, look, there's an offer of a job in the construction sector. Would you be interested? I said, well, I'll have a look. Might as well do something. So that was probably 15 years ago now maybe and yeah i spent quite a bit of time in 
various aspects of construction, demolition, contaminated land remediation is something I've really started focusing on quite a lot. Mm. And I suppose that that was the yeah a route through different regulators. I dealt with a lot of regulators in, in working in construction, the Environment Agency and DEFRA especially, and planet planners as well. And I think a lot of that's helped with a lot of the conversations we're having now with regulators and mm. and things that are going on in in the industry currently. Um, and that's the thing that really sort of I suppose piqued my interest initially. I've always been a a big advocate of cannabis as a whole, um, but when I started looking at hemp's ability to what they call phytoremediate contaminated land. That was my initial mm. sort of interest. And I was thinking this might be a sustainable way that we can clean up large areas of poor quality land that's been impacted. But as soon as I started researching the crop, I thought, wow, this is this can do so, so much more than just clean up a bit of contaminated land. And I just saw the stars aligning to a certain degree between the global awareness of climate crisis, of microplastics, mm. of all these different things that I could see hemp could be a solution to, to solve. Um, and, and that's really where the, the journey started on, on my hemp and cannabis journey yeah. as such. I did a lot of research, spent quite a lot of time running around the country talking to as many bif- different people who were already in the industry and then realised when we put the Unite group together that it was going to need to be vertically integrated and, and also it needed to be done at, the, at large scale to make it long-term viable. So we've modelled a lot of things over the last few years and, and we're now in a position where we think we've, uh, we've got a great model for, for the UK, um, which is focused initially on construction it's a high volume end use market but also very focused on medical as the licensing yeah. frameworks open up here as well and we've been working quite closely with the Isle of Man around their licensing frameworks as well so potentially looking to apply for a license over there yeah can you tell us about how Unite was created how it was born yes I mean it was it was really a, a conversation I was um it was myself and Guy were actually down in Norfolk, and we were both presenting at a uh, Guy Cox, and we were both presenting at a um, Hemp Symposium. So there's only about 15 or so people down there, and a couple of chaps came down who we'd met previously at one of the CTA events, and they were looking at the industry, they were looking at getting into it. They had no previous experience of the hemp or cannabis industry at all, but um, they came down, they certainly piqued their attention, I think, and between us, we put together a plan to, to form the group, and uh, off we went. It's quite a diverse group, but yeah, that's where really where we put it together back in the 2018. So, ha- right. so what led you to be at that event initially? So, were you already involved in hemp in in some way before Unite? Then how? Yeah, so I mean, I've I've been I've been doing a lot of research and I've been working quite closely with Guy. There was a couple did you of, meet Guy just through 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 hemp and cannabis? Yes, yeah. it was through uh, original CTA, the very first CTA event, and me and Guy got on really well. We're, we're good friends now, and. Uh, we we spent a lot of time over the last few years, sort of working on various different projects, and and that was really where it came from. It was a, it was a at that time a few other other people were involved in it, which didn't really go anywhere that project, but it was really the starting point, and it was an educational piece that myself and Guy were doing, trying to educate farmers etc. on mm. on the benefits. Mm. Okay, where's Unite now? Tell us a bit more about what the parts of Unite and what you're doing, and so I mean we've got uh, Unite's got various different businesses within the group i mean we we're forecasting a 14 million revenue across the group this year um we've got 1700 acres licensed in unite hemp which is very much focused on industrial hemp albeit we are looking at multiple other sectors as well as they come online unite medical is purely focused on medical cannabis and again we're, look, we're looking to really provide quality and cost effective access to to cannabis medicines for anyone that can benefit from it 
I think the big barrier there at the moment is the licensing. Is I think we're we're all on the same page with, but hopefully that will that will come on, on stream fairly soon. We've got Unite Waste, which is my previous construction and waste management business, and we've also got Unite Energy, which focuses on retrofit insulation and energy efficiency measures in Amazing. existing properties. And how have you found running a company like that? Um, lots of balls in the air. <laughs> yeah. um, every day is different. I mean, I, I I thrive off having lots to do, and I've always been quite self-motivated so i'm not put off by having numerous different things on my to-do list that are across multiple sectors i just i can compartmentalize quite well so i can put little silos in my head and yeah I, I, yeah. yeah i think i think it's just something i've got the ability that i can look at quite a lot of stuff and not get overstressed, over-stressed or yeah, that's put yeah. off by it nice and relaxed and calm that's a good way to be if you're going to run a big company like yeah. that absolutely <laughs> what have been the main challenges to um, it's a complex, very successful now, very complex company, different arms and different... How have you found actually running it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it is it is hard work. There's been a few bumps along the roads, um, yeah. obviously, as, as along with COVID as well, which has impacted everyone in different ways. I think we've found it OK. We've weathered, certainly weathered some storms. I think there's, yeah, there's times when you think... Oh, <laughs> this, this is a lot going on here but I think equally I, I do thrive off it and my, my passion is really sort of improving human and planetary health and I can see that we are going to mm. be able to do that with a lot of the things that we're we're putting together a lot of the projects so no I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where we are and where it's going I always um, wonder and I'd be interested because I don't know because obviously I've always come from this as a medicinal plant for my son and so I don't understand the hemp side of things at all but I'm, I'm very interested in it but it seems quite simple that you could replace plastic using hemp tomorrow. Why? Why is that? Why is that not happening? Do you think it's money? Um, I think one of its barriers is money and infrastructure because certainly for plastics, because it's quite a low value product, you need to do it at a very large scale to make it cost viable. Mm. Um, which is one of the reasons that as much as we are developing plastic, we've just we've just got some twenty five percent hemp plastic that we're doing some trials with at the moment. I see some of the other end use sectors being higher value and therefore potentially more attractive to launch initially. And then as we can develop income streams from some of these initial products, we can then really look to to generate the revenue and the scale needed for things like the the, plastic, the bioplastic side of things. Because mm. that just strikes me as being something that's so important because our seas are full of yeah. plastic and... We need to do something quite urgently about that, don't we? And and it sort of seems very overwhelming when you see these films of plastic in oceans and you just think it's really quite frightening, actually. It is. It's shocking. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, we, I was just talking over breakfast, actually, around Seaspiracy, one of those films. And I think one of the problems, actually, as well, with, with bioplastics or their adoption in the UK is that, unfortunately, the UK government have put a stipulation in place that any new plastic product that gets manufactured has to have 30% of recycled plastic content which is fine if it's, you're making out of petrol chemical plastic doesn't work if you're making out of a bioplastic because the compostability of it or the, the biodegradability of the bioplastic isn't going to it's going to be 30% reduced because you've got a petrochemical plastic mm. in there so I think that's probably one of the barriers because I know you do lob, you know within what you do you do lobbying as well so you're engaging with these regulators is what what is your sort of top priorities with regard to sort of changing legislation or changing the government's view on things I mean I think certainly these two main things I think we really need to see to, to assist the industry it's a streamlining of the medical licensing framework at the moment as you well know mm. we need five different licenses to cultivate from the home office as well as at least one if not two from the MHRA 
and it's a very protected system at the moment and also there's not really a route to commercialization at the back of that either plus you have to go and build a facility get it inspected before you even know if you're going to get a license which is a little well not not a little bit a lot of a risk um so i think that's certainly something that, that really needs looking at in the uk from from the medical side of things and a deregulation of hemp as well i mean i think it's it's a crop that grows in the fields but it's still treated like a controlled drug by the home office it's still dealt with by the drugs and firearms mm. licensing unit all of those mean that they're the big barriers to farmers to mm. go and just grow what in essence is a very sustainable crop and mm. far more sustainable than the alternatives well it seems a great opportunity i mean i don't know have you watched jeremy clarkson's new uh, program and that was my sister as you know my my brother-in-law is a farmer and they are working every hour and not making any money and then when you watch that i think it was really important program for him to do and i don't know if you saw the bit where he'd done all the crops and they work out that he'd made like 37 pounds or something <laughs> which is it's not funny but it, i mean he, he made it funny but you think you know we need some way of sustaining farming in the uk because if we're not careful we'll see this model where we import everything and we have no farms left. And I just think that it would be a travesty. It's just frightening, actually. We have an opportunity post-Brexit to create really good, you know, industry. And I think people want to buy local. They want to buy their food locally. They want to know that the vegetables and their meat have come from the UK. And it's frightening to think that we might be in a position where we're not going to have that. It's, it's all going to be imported when the regulations are going to be different from the countries it comes from. So I think the hemp thing is really, really important for farmers, yeah. Absolutely, and some of the benefits as well for farmers having hemp in their rotation, the follow-on crop yields, we've done quite a lot of trials over the last two years. We've grown 240 mm. acre trials but for the last two years and measured a lot of data. But the follow-on crop yield of spring barley actually increased by 15 to 18% in its yield. Really? So not only do you yeah. get a, a, a crop that you can grow that isn't competing with food crops, because a lot of energy crops are in competition with food so it actually increases our food security by having hemp in the crop rotation mm. because it increases the following yields. But you can also take sustainable plant protein powder from the hemp seed as well as using the biomass, the straw and the fibre mm. and the shiv for multiple different products. And that gives the farmers lots of value from one crop, which means they're going to want to grow it. Mm. Yeah. And at the moment, as you say, Hannah, they, they, they have to work very hard to make not to make a lot no of money. money. And exactly. And this did, <laughs> absolutely, if there was an... It, we'd need the infrastructure in place because that isn't in place at the right mm. scales at the moment. So that is the big chicken and egg. The farmers want to grow it and they will grow it if there's a commercial return for it. But the commercial return isn't there unless it's processed at the right scale. And that's, yeah, that, and then you have to make have to put money in to make that available, the infrastructure available, and that's a risk mm. at Absolutely. the moment. I mean, we're looking at 21 million for the first facility, okay. um, which will have 15,000 acres a year as a mm. feedstock. What do you think, having... To spoken to regulators what do you think the appetite is for change or do you think it's because i obviously our, our experiences with government is very slow turning cogs which is very frustrating because for us it seems like it's it just makes sense you know with governments if they want to make change they can we've seen that over the last year they can do whatever they like if they've got the appetite to do it exactly that. and it's really frustrating when it seems to just take so long when it makes so much sense no, I couldn't agree more, and it, it is very frustrating when we've seen them act so quickly over certain things. And again, with the, the change in medical cannabis, obviously you were massively instrumental with both of you, but that was that came around ultimately in about eight or ten weeks maybe of public pressure, and, <laughs> and it was a great campaign. Mm. And it really and I think the piece that did that was it people stopped hearing cannabis medicine and they just yeah. start seeing, seeing mothers the, yeah, and exactly. sons, that, yeah. you know, mums that can't help their sons with medicine. Yeah. And, and that suddenly then clicks with everyone in the UK that's a parent and it, not just people who are potentially pro or against cannabis and I think that's the 
That's have you bit... ever thought about doing some sort of campaign with hemp, i.e. getting a farmer at the front of your campaign to do... Because mm. these these campaigns, you know, obviously I, I was an accidental campaigner. I had a child very sick and I went to Holland and then I came home and I was very lucky to meet End Our Pain and it just was like a, this big whirlwind and then it all happened, thank God. But I do think that sort of emotive story, a campaign, like a proper campaign, really does push the media in. And that's what you need. You need mm. the media on your side to make change. And that's been quite difficult because of COVID. But uh, have you ever thought about creating some sort of campaign like that to actually really push it forward? On to, uh, you know, because that's what you need to get. You need to get the public interested. And we all know about it. But if you spoke to people in the street, would they know about it? And I think... I think, you know, no, I think it, it, it's hard, of, I think, with the, the national media. I've always been quite successful at getting local media, BBC and ITV down to the field. It was mm. like coming down and shooting a bit of video. And mm. So I think local media-wise, we've been quite successful, but we have struggled a little bit with national media. There is a, there's a conversation going on with the Daily Climate Show, with Sky at the moment, that might lead in some in. And there's a couple of conversations around documentaries being put together to sort of really push the whole mm. message of the industry. Mm. but and, and I think hopefully through through the Cannabis Industry Council as well, I think the, there's some great options there for, for lobbying and for getting the right messages out to the right to the media sources yeah. as well. Mm. So hopefully that will drive some, some interest from, from national levels as well. Mm. How have you felt about, essentially you've had to not just run a complicated business, but you've had to turn yourself into a bit of a campaigner. So how have you felt about that? Are you, do you like the campaigning side? Do you like getting the press involved? Um, I like the education, I think, is yeah. probably how I view it. I, I love educating people with knowledge that we've researched and found and that's factually correct. I think that's one of the big things that needs to be done for, to, for the whole mm. industry to really develop is that educational piece. It's to break down yeah. that yeah. instant reaction to the words that's created by the prohibition rhetoric. But so many yeah. people, you mentioned hemp or cannabis, and their instant reaction, it's not even a one they choose to make but it's a it's a negative yeah. reaction and yeah as soon as we can break down those reactions and barriers you think that's soon, breaking do you think it's i think so yeah i do i think on i do i think i think obviously medical cannabis yeah. legislation has helped i think cbd has normalized cannabis for a lot of people as well yes um so i do think it, it is changing it is coming yeah. but it's it, like the government i think it's probably slowing it could be, do yeah. it been a bit quicker yeah. So where do you think we'll be in five years? That sounds like an interview question, doesn't it? But where, <laughs> do you think we'll be there? Do you think? Hopefully not having the same conversations yeah, about the same legislation. Um, no, I think we'll be. I think we'll be a lot further forwards. Um, I'd like to think we actually see a, a regulated adult use market. Whether we actually get there in five five years or not, probably some of that will depend on politics, unfortunately. But I think we'll be a far more established industry than we are now, and I'd, yeah. I'd hope to see we would have quite high volumes of hemp processing. Mm capacity in the yeah. UK as well. I think we have a big opportunity as a country to create a really amazing sector, as you say, with hemp and medical cannabis, to have domestic grows, to have secure supply chains. I just hope that we don't miss that opportunity due to stigma and due to other lobbying who are against it and that sort of thing, because I think there is an amazing opportunity for us post-Brexit to create a lot of jobs and, and money for the economy and it's really, really positive. It could be really, really positive, and we could be end up being a world leader if we wanted to be. And Absol I just really hope we don't miss the boat. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree more because I think <laughs> it's strange. I think that a lot of the the rest of the world do look at the UK as one of the more progressive cannabinoid and cannabis industries whereas I think most people in the UK would say the opposite <laughs> well I remember um, um, Peter yeah. Reynolds saying that Ireland makes uh, the UK look like California <laughs> which yeah, really that, made me laugh <laughs> I think he's got a good point there and I mean I think absolutely Hannah I mean there's such a socio-economic opportunity for the UK mm. 
job creation, yes. stopping transporting stuff worldwide, supply chain resilience, econo- mm. leveling up economies, all of these things. Tax income. Boris is sitting there saying, today. we want yeah. to do this, we want to do that. I looked at his 10-point yes. plan and I could write 10 responses how hemp and cannabis can, can do, do all of those <laughs> yeah. if yeah. they just unlock the keys and, yeah. and make it a little bit more streamlined. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you think is behind that? Is it just lack of understanding, stigma they're worried about? I, you know, They've got a big population of voters that are 60 plus. Do you think that's... That's the issue. I do, do, unfortunately. I think it's it's that educational piece. I mean, but then if we look at CBD, for instance, I know certainly from from my CBD business, our our probably biggest population or biggest demographic is over 60-year-old women using our products. And it has been consistently since we started the business in 2017. So I think there's... I think the government probably perceived that that would be an an issue, issue, but I don't think it would be as big an issue if they actually engaged and started the conversations. At the moment, there's... So you've got certain MPs like Crispin Blunt who are great, who are very, very pro and, mm. and continually keeping the conversation going. But I think it's quite important we, we engage more MPs and get yeah. that conversation going. And then also, as you said earlier, get the public knowledge where it needs to be yeah, and get the definitely. public on board as well. Yeah, I mean, my mum lives in Stowe on the Wold, which is one of, you know, a conservative stronghold, but everyone that she knows knows about Alfie and are very pro-cannabis and can't understand why it's not available. So actually, I think that they're doing a negative service to their government rather than a positive one, because I think actually a lot of people do understand it. They know the stories. Mm. They don't understand why it's not available. I mean, we're in a position at the moment where the government just say, well, it's the research isn't done. That's not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. It's a plant of many, many compounds. It's not a pharmaceutical. It's not a single compound. Accept that and do something about it. But if they continue to have that position of, I mean, we saw a letter that was written from Nicola Sturge and she says, well, the research hasn't been done. But if she understood that that could take thousands of years to randomise control trial all these compounds, you know, it's, it's ignorance. And they don't listen. And that's what I get really frustrated with when I've talked to government officials before that they take advice from people who are against it, like doctors who are against it, but they don't listen to me because I'm just a mum. You know, I don't, you know, why why would she be worth listening to? And that's really frustrating because actually we know a lot more about it than they, these people that are anti and that it's very frustrating. But we just have to keep, we have to keep going and keep fighting for what's right for people. (laughs) You think there are internationally, I mean, the countries that are from the hemp point of view, not the medical cannabis point of view, ahead of us. I mean, China, for example, produces about 50% of the worldwide supply. Have they got it right? Um, I think China have certainly been far more progressive because they didn't mm. have the 1920s and 30s prohibition that mm. the rest of the world ultimately took on from, from the US. Um, so they have, I mean, the whole Chinese army is clothed in hemp uniforms, all of their bulletproof vests right? right. are made right. from right. hemp composites as well. So, I mean, yeah, yes. Green they, army, not the red. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they, are, they are quite developed. Yeah. I'd say they are probably looking at diversifying now as well into sort of higher value products as well, potentially. There's a lot mm. of talk around um, hemp for graphene, for batteries. It's, it's far more, mm. 30% more efficient and 20% more cost-effective than using yeah. graphite to produce graphene. So I think there's a, some further higher technology products we'll see come out of China. Mm. I think, again, we are, we're you're seeing it globally. I mean, we're, we're involved in a lot of different international projects. Yeah. But I have to say they're all at the, the starting point. Um, Europe's quite developed. There's, I think across Europe, it's probably one of the more developed sectors for industrial yeah. hemp. The US all set up initially just growing for cannabinoids, female plants, which doesn't really give you the biomass volume, the straw volume to really go into into other uses and decortication plants, etc. But but now they're realising with the, the obviously the crash in CBD prices we've seen over the last three years, mm. 
that doesn't stack up now. They need to they need to be using the whole plant, which is something I've always said. You've got to use the whole plant for as many different products as you can, mm. and yeah. that gives you yeah. one the most value, but two the most diversification into different sectors. That then, if you do get commoditization of certain products, it's not going to have a complete wipeout effect on your business model. Mm. Mm. So, if you had to change one part of the law, which would you change in terms of in terms of hemp at the moment? Um, in terms of hemp, I would remove the licensing requirement. And just have it mm. under DEFRA as, as any other crop. Any other crop. Yeah, and allow the flower and leaf. Flower and leaf, that's the word I'm trying to yeah. find, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because again, yeah. that's that's yeah. ridiculous. We've got it's 647 crazy. million, is it, last year, CBD industry in the UK, and we've got... All a, imported. And it's every single bit of it's imported. Yeah. But it's crazy, I don't think the public don't know that, yeah, that you, you, you burn the stuff in the field and you, you bring it in from abroad. How... It's, How crazy yeah. is that? Well, that's the thing. If they're yeah. going to allow it to be available in this country, i.e. imported from abroad, then yeah. why don't we have a domestic sector and grow it here and then make it available here? I mean, it's just yeah. absolutely crazy, yeah. isn't it's it? Absolutely ridiculous. And then yeah. you've got the emissions of importing stuff. You've yeah. got the fact yeah. that you're wasting that biomass. Yeah. And you even if it... I mean, I, I do absolutely think we should be able to use the whole flower leaf for any any use mm-hmm. you want to, including extraction for cannabinoids, etc. But even if they weren't going to go all the way to that route... Just let us use it for energy production. Put it yeah. into aerobic yeah. digestion. No, why, do, why just rot yeah. it in the field? It's, yeah. it's it's such a waste, and it mm. goes yeah. against everything that trying to push for circular economy and being more being more environmentally mm. friendly. And then we're we're forcing all these products to get shipped. Did you um, yeah. read the Tigger report? Yes. Did, did you? How did you feel about that? Um, I, I felt they completely got confused between medical cannabis, yeah. CBD as a food supplement, and hemp, and they didn't even. Con- touch on hemp to be fair Mm. which is a bit of disappointment because i've I've put forward quite a few different responses around Mm. how we could unlock certain things um and i think yeah that certainly this move and talk of over the council schedule five is absolutely ridiculous i think the mhra has been very clear it's it's not a medical product from the start or certainly since 2017 Mm. 16 and it's been regulated as a food hence we've got all this novel food stuff going on so it went completely opposite to novel foods which i thought was interesting Mm. because they well they they've been advised by certain consultancies that seem to want novel food so i was was very confused by it to be honest no it doesn't (laughs) it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either and to be honest as well the i think if you look at over-the-counter Schedule 5, that's normally used for drugs that have been prescribed and then after many years of safe prescription, like paracetamol, they get downgraded to a Schedule 5. I'm not aware of any products that have been upgraded to a Schedule 5 from a food. (laughs) So it does does sound a little bit backwards to me, yeah. Yeah, which is a shame, but there we go. Right. (laughs) Yes. There's an interesting space to be in at the moment, isn't it? It's uh, exciting. Do you find that? Do you still... Get that buzz from it. Absolutely. It must be days when you're worn down by endless problems at the business and this and that. But are you generally upbeat and positive about the whole sector? And yes. No. I, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. yeah. Still wake up every morning thinking, yes, this is. And I, I get the feeling we're we're starting to see some changes. I think it's. Yeah. I think it's hard when we're all in the fight every day, day in day out. Look at where we are now from two years ago. And yeah. I think I think there's a lot been done. I think we are. I think it's easy to oversee that when you're in it all day, every day. Mm. I think you're right, James. Mike says the same thing to me because I sometimes get very upset about the fact that you know we are actually in a worse position at the moment for children with epilepsy in the UK than we were when the law changed. To be quite honest, because um, when the panel was available, two children got licences, but now you know we've got one prescriber because the other one's retiring. The other one was reported to GMC. I mean, it's just awful, and I'm I'm I get so upset by 
what these poor families have to face every day and I just think oh I wish I could do more to help them but you always say you know if you step back and actually look from the We've come a long minute way. I went to Holland to where we are I mean we just there's who would have ever imagined that we'd be where we are so it, you know we are we have achieved yeah. so much but it, it's not quick enough it's not good enough but all we can do is keep focusing on what we think should happen all of us and mm. and from all different angles and make it right you know and and Hopefully we will eventually. Well, that's it. So. You, you only lose when you stop fighting, don't you? So as long as yeah. you don't stop fighting, you haven't lost. And no, I think that's, exactly. that's the key. You just, exactly. we, yeah. just got to keep going. I think it will get there. Uh, I'm sure it will get there. Mm. And, and it's just, yeah, it will take time. Hopefully less time rather than more time. But, yeah, I think it, we will get there. Yeah. yeah. So where do so you that... see Unite in five years' time? Um, I'd like to think that we'll be vertically integrated across both medical and temp in multiple different countries. We've got a few different projects that are close to being finalised and we'll sort of publicise those a bit more once they are, um, which are international ones. Um, so I'd like to think that we'd have at least, by that point, say three to four facilities processing hemp in the UK, mainly into construction materials. Um, but again, to unlock all of that, I need to find... Well, if we're going to go for four plants, four times 21 million. Yeah, so, so you need a lot of investment. I was going to ask you, I hope it's not too personal, but do you have an exit plan? Is it is this going to be your life? Are you going to do this for the rest of your life? Or are you just like, I'm going to put 10 years into this and work my socks off and then I'm going to go and re- retire in, I don't so, know, no, I Spain? Retiring is definitely not on the mind or the card. I'd be too bored. I can't, I can't sit on the beach for more than 10 minutes without getting bored and everything yeah. and go and do something. So, no, I mean, I'd, I'd always... I'd, yeah, I'm not someone that's got sort of... It's, for me, it's not about the money. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sitting here with no, no money, no great amount of money coming in, but yeah. it, it isn't necessarily about the money. I think it's about... I like to think that I'd be able to leave a bit of a legacy and if I can get yeah. the Unite group going in the way I want to, maybe there is an exit from that, but I think that would lead into probably a maybe a consultancy-type role yeah. for, for other projects internationally because yeah, yeah. I do spend a lot of time maybe wrongly at the moment, but doing pretty much unpaid consultancy yeah. on these types of international, yeah. international projects because mm. it's to a certain degree yeah. that you've got to get them to a certain stage before it's going to be viable, before mm. the investment can get closed into X projects. Yeah. So I think you do have to put some legwork into those, but I'd quite like to spend more time doing well, that. It's something I'm sure you could do once we've got us as sort of a... As a an industry it will be much needed and we always talk about that don't we it's like you end up sort of just putting all your time into it for a lot of the time when you shouldn't be doing it or you should be being charging for it but I very much think this is a vocation it's not a job I mean you we you wake up every day and it's just part of your life and it's very you know for me it's been like that because of my son and it's it matters and it's really important. It's the same with you, isn't it, Mike? It's just, you know, it's so important that people are okay and yeah. they have the help they need and all that. So it's yeah. sort of a bit annoying sometimes because some days you just say, I don't want to do this anymore because it's too hard, but I can't stop because yeah, <laughs> it's just in my DNA. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that's it, Hannah. I mean, it, it is, I think we all do it because we all care for people and we want to see, we want to see the changes. We all know and believe that the benefits that people can experience and we see it first hand all day every day so mm. i think it would yeah i think that's probably one of the biggest motivators is seeing that change and seeing that that help albeit if it's very small steps legislation wise we're still yeah we're still getting a we're still getting there i think and having an impact which is what it's about definitely yeah. anything else you have in your life must be hemp do you have another life do you have uh, what what else um I, t- what else? I mean I, I do i mean free time wise albeit not for the last 18 months but generally yeah. like to try and get away snowboarding a bit to the mountains spend as much time in the mountains as we can yeah if we kept your interest in the 
skiing, snowboarding side. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I always go back to team where I lived as well because it's, yeah. it's like a home from home. I've got yeah, all my sure. friends out there. So, yeah, looking forward to getting back out there. Other than that... Kept you interested yeah. in pubs? Uh, yeah, yeah, pubs, <laughs> pubs occasionally, yeah. yes. <laughs> not, not too much, but occasionally. And, and to be honest, I mean, actually, sort of going back to the why, if you like, one of the mm. one of the, the reasons actually was was alcohol related. The reasons that I really wanted to start pushing medical cannabis is because one of my best friends died of alcohol poisoning and alcohol abuse, basically, very quickly because we didn't really know that he was actually struggling that much either. And it it was a real it was a real shock. It was a real blow. Um, but it also it just made me realise what why have we got this legally available mm. drug in every corner in every pub that has such a detrimental impact on lives mm. yet we've got cannabis that's illegal that's mm. such an improvement and exactly. how many people have yeah. died of cannabis overdose how many well, people die of alcohol exactly it's, and that, yeah. that was well, that was another real sort of driver to, and motivator for mm. me to, to really try and promote yeah. cannabis as a pro- yeah, product yeah and that was a real eye for me when you know Drew and I spent many weekends in hospital with Alfie in A&E and there were many times we were there on a Saturday or Sunday or Friday night where people were so drunk that they had security guards there and police and they were fighting or they'd been fighting and they needed to be stitched up. That's why they're in A&E. And it is, it's so damaging. And, and we've talked about this before. If, if alcohol was suddenly invented today, it would be prohibited. So, you know, absolutely. It's the one, of the, like David Nutt always says, it's the one, you know, it's the most dangerous drug you can have. Um, but because it's socially acceptable... It is, you know, it is. It's socially acceptable to say, oh, I'm going to go to the cocktail bar and have a cocktail or whatever, that you don't bat an eyelid. But actually, it's so damaging to society, mm. to families, to, you know, health. So I, I, I agree. The irony is, as I said before, if, if cannabis had also been discovered five years ago up the Amazon jungle, and people come up with this wonderful plant that mm. cleans the soil and is good for the environment and is good for health. I mean, think it was a we, miracle. Would we be hesitating at all <laughs> yeah, about exactly. it? No, of course we wouldn't. It's all yeah. this ridiculous stigma, stigma that's still, still promoted by less and less people, I have to say. Mm. It's still that ridiculous uh, reefer madness view is still promoted mm. by some. Absolutely. And I think, I think to be honest, those, those big corporate entities that really were behind the whole reefer madness campaign, you've got mm. Petro, DuPont because of the petrochemical yeah. investments they've made for yeah. nylon, and big, big farmer and big forestry were the main sort of influence. They're still there, but yeah. they're also all now realising they've got to do something different. These, we've got these net twenty. I think that's what training. encourages me that it's if you can't beat them, join them. I think mm. we've overcome to an extent, and I'm not naive to think it's not still under the yeah. under the counter pressure and lobbying from big farmer. But I think it's less, and I think it's encouraging actually oddly, to see big pharma, big alcohol, big tobacco investing in the cannabis industry. That shows me that we've won. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, mm. d- definitely, Mike. I think yeah. with GW's purchase recently, I mean, that, that shows yeah. that, yes, there is, there is a real interest now in this. Yeah. And mm. admittedly, obviously, GW have gone down a slightly different route mm. than, than probably... I don't understand of. why they did. I mean, yeah. it's the only way they would have got their product to market... Mm where they started 20 years ago, was go down the pharmaceutical route. And mm. I don't criticise them. Like the opposite, I think mm. they were pioneers in many ways. Yeah. I think it's a pity they haven't slightly changed direction now. Mm. I understand why they're not. I think that's a pity, but they were very they, they, pioneering. They're quite... They're very influential, and they could actually lobby Good. for the change in in, yes. in, in the foundations of, of NICE, etc., and actually create whole plant products as well, but they probably don't. Mm. And with the purchase of GW, that means actually in the UK now we have no medicinal companies. And I think it's really sad that the government won't change things 
because of patients, or that you know they did. They changed the law because of Alfie's campaign and others um, in eighteen. And I think they think that. Yeah, you know, I've been talking to people before, and and I think actually the government thinks they've done the right thing. And actually now it's up to. I mean, remember Matt Hancock standing up many times in Parliament saying the law changed, so it's up to doctors to prescribe because he doesn't understand. Actually, then they can't. They're not allowed to. There's no funding. Blah blah blah. And and I actually think that they just need to listen about all the issues and actually do something about it. But I hope that they'll change because they'll realise how much money they can make. And that's wrong as far as I'm concerned. They should do it because they want they care right about thing. people, they care about patients. They, they'll do it for the wrong reasons. But they, they will do it, they will do it well, because yeah. they'll realise that it makes a lot of money yes. at the end of the yeah. day. And that's that's sad, but it will, that's why I believe it'll happen because it's got to, because the money... <laughs> Yeah, and Sadly. That's, why the, that's why I think the best thing we could possibly do is invest in a proper health economic impact mm. study mm. Uh, from, from hemp to medical cannabis and everything in between, a proper study so we can show there's less physiotherapy for pain, more people get back to work, more carers do less caring, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And I know we could demonstrate a totally solid economic argument for this, and that's time we did that. And I'm mm. astonished worldwide it's never been done. Yeah, it is. It is crazy because it, yeah. absolutely, Mike. I think it. That's the piece that will mm. show show the decision makers, if you like. Yeah. What Even the, do. Yeah, the cannabis or cynics. Oh, yeah. actually, make money from it. Let's do that yeah. then. Oh, well, yeah. and save money. Yeah, well, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's yeah. Do it, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Sadly, that's what it's all yes. about, really, isn't it? The money, but <laughs> we have to just get well, on with it and accept it for what it is. And again, I mean, Sorry. unfortunately, it is one of those things. Any, whether it be medical or hemp, it, it all needs capital. None of it. Of course, it does. It needs yeah. infrastructure. So. And yeah, yeah, and I actually, yeah. you know, I I think people like we always talk about. People get really think edgy about the fact, oh, you know, making money out of cannabis. You can't do that. But actually, yes, you can, as long as you do it ethically and you are focused on your end user, which is your patient. I don't. I, I wish everyone well. Make as much money as you can because actually, that's what improves people's lives, their families' mm. lives. It, they're paying their tax. As long as people are paying their taxes, and they, you know, good luck to them. It's not about that. It's about. But I also think it has to be about ethically. It has to be about focusing on patients and. You know, so people get really stiffy, don't they, about talking about people making money from cannabis. I think that's a real shame because actually it could be an amazing sector that benefits many, many people and many, many companies and creates many, many jobs. And that's that can only be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us today. No, thank you for so. everything you've, you're doing in the industry as a whole, and in particular, of course, hemp. Mr. Hemp. <laughs> you are Mr. Uh, Hemp. Mr. Hemp. When I think of Hemp, I think of Jamie. <laughs> exactly. And so, Mr. Hemp, it's been a, a huge pleasure to talk to you and discuss things, and thank you very much for coming. Thank no, you. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Anna, and thanks both of you for everything you do to the industry as well. Thank, thank you. you.